You're listening to From the Front Lines, a special podcast from WUFT during the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast provides weekly updates on Florida's coronavirus response with a particular focus on North Central Florida. Each week, From the Front Lines will feature community leaders and frontline workers working to reopen their communities safely during these challenging times. Hello, I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and this is From the Front Lines. School districts around the state are working hard to try to get kids back to school in the fall safely. They do so under an emergency order from the State Department of Education to open brick-and-mortar schools at least five days a week for all students. It has prompted a lawsuit from the Florida Education Association, who feel the order defies health and safety recommendations to reopen schools safely. Governor Ron DeSantis continued his push for schools to reopen this week, but says ultimately school districts have the flexibility teachers who may be higher risk or even those who just don't feel comfortable with in-person instruction, they should be given the option of working remotely. Why force someone to be in the classroom if they're uncomfortable doing so? Let's just find a way to make do. And if a school district needs to delay the school year for a few weeks so that everything will be in good shape, have at it. In the same address, he also said teachers were chomping at the bit to get back to work. In this episode, we talk to teachers to see if they, in fact, can't wait to return to schools next month. We also hear from parents about their concerns and questions for a safe return. And we talk with education and health experts about the many benefits of school and the challenges of conducting it during a pandemic. First, let's hear from the Florida Education Association. The state's largest teachers union filed a lawsuit this week against the state for mandating a return to brick-and-mortar schools in the fall. Kristen Moorhead talked with FEA Vice President Andrew Sparr about why they want to stop schools from reopening in August as cases of COVID-19 rise. What is the Florida Education Association's stance on schools reopening? Our stance really is that we want our schools to reopen in the safest, most responsible way possible. For that to happen, uh, lots of things need to be in place. One, community spread needs to be down. We've seen an incredible increase in community spread of COVID. And so that's number one. Number two, when we open and reopen these campuses, we need to have measures in place to make sure that we're looking out for the health and safety of our students and the people who work in our schools. And that means social distancing. That means temperature checks. That may mean masks. All of those things need to be taken into account and there needs to be a clear plan for that to happen. Why did the FEA file this lawsuit? Very simple. We've been lacking leadership here in the state of Florida. You know, from the time the COVID crisis started, there was the shutdown of our schools. There was then a move to talk about how are we going to reopen schools, but there's been very little guidance, very little guidance at all in regards to that. We formed our own committee at FEA because the governor didn't, when we requested, made up of educators, of parents, of medical experts, of mental health experts, and of businesses and elected officials, because you need a broad-based approach to how we do this the right way. What the governor is right on, and we agree with him on, is that public schools are a vital part of our community. They're a vital part of our community because they help push the economic engine, and they're a vital part of our community because our students learn best when they're at school. We know that. We've always known that. The paramount duty we have is to keep kids safe. Uh, Our Constitution in Florida calls on the governor and on the legislature 
to ensure the safety and well-being of every student in the state of Florida, as well as educate them. This emergency order says we are to reopen schools in brick and mortar, or you may lose funding. And that kind of threat, that kind of bullying, has created complete chaos across the state. But our governor, in his leadership, and, and a lot of other elected officials, have not taken steps to reduce the community spread. And that's why we had to file this lawsuit. We can't allow the governor to create chaos or to send people back into schools when it's not safe to do so. And what is the goal of the lawsuit? What changes do you want to see? We want to see that emergency order go away. Um, and we would like the governor and the state to give guidance on what should be happening. We are hearing that local county administrators for the Department of Health are being told not to issue any recommendations on reopening schools. They're, they're the health people. They're supposed to tell us, is it safe or not? And they're saying they can't comment on that. That makes no sense at all. The governor needs to step up and tell them that they are free to give the medical advice they know is necessary to look out for the public health. We want to get back to school. We want to get back into the classroom. We have to do it responsibly. We have to do it safely. What do you think the state's duty is when reopening schools? So first and foremost is they need to empower and support local school boards and local districts in making decisions that are right for their community. They have to empower them. Then they have to make sure they have the resources. So I would like to see our governor advocating for Washington to pass the HEROES Act, which would literally bring billions of dollars to Florida's public schools. Florida's public schools need that money to ensure that we have the appropriate cleaning supplies, that we can sanitize our classrooms regularly, maybe even more than once a day. We need the resources, which may be people, which may be supplies, to make that happen. And how do teachers feel about schools reopening? I'm going to say this again. Teachers, it's at our core. It's the heartstring of what we are that we cannot fathom bringing kids back into an environment where it's not safe. We care about our kids. You have seen teachers literally take bullets for their kids and lay their life on the line for the kids. The governor is asking teachers who care so much about kids to literally bring them into an environment where they may not be safe. And that is pulling at the heartstrings of our teachers because we know the best place for kids to learn is in our public schools. We know that's the best place for them to be. They need to socially interact. We know that's where learning is at its prime. We miss our kids, but we don't want them to come in if it's not safe. And we also have to remember that the adults in our schools are also concerned about their health and their safety. We just did a survey, almost 50,000 people responded. 39% of educators said they may retire or resign and not come back if they're forced to come back in a brick and mortar setting. Obviously, if you have 39% of our force leave, that's a massive problem. Josh Williams spoke with Dr. Chris Curran, one of the co-directors of U.S. Education Policy Research Center, about what districts are doing to keep students safe. As far as districts that might have been starting to make plans to return to in-person classes, how were they planning on keeping students safe? What are some of the things that have come up? We've seen a lot of different approaches to safety and a lot of variation in school districts' responses. So here at UF, the Education Policy Research Center has been tracking reopening plans for all 67 of the school districts in the state of Florida. 
And our initial data collection gathered information on reopening plans as of mid-July. And what we've seen in those plans is that there's a great level of variation. So about a quarter of school districts across the state actually have not publicly released via their website a reopening plan yet. Of the three quarters that do, the plans vary from some that are only a few paragraphs that kind of broadly provide some high level overview of responses and plans to going back to some others that have 60, 70 page PDF documents that are very detailed. And so what we're seeing is that many districts are planning for the sort of procedures that we've heard discussed in national conversations and recommended by the CDC and others. We have districts that are making requirements for the use of personal protective equipment like face masks. Um, in our current data collection, there were about 28% of districts with reopening plans that were requiring students to wear face masks at least part of the time. So often this looked like wearing face masks when transitioning between classes or when riding the bus or in other common areas in the schools. Though so I think we know that those are kind of ongoing conversations and are even subject to change as time has progressed. Obviously, a lot of this relies on the fact of adults performing sanitation and older children wearing their masks. What do you do about the kids who are perhaps in like that K through five, that younger group, trying to get them to wear this PPE? This is a real challenge, and I think it's one that many districts have recognized. So again, the majority of districts so far, or at least as of mid-July, that we're talking about requiring masks for students or um, at least requiring them in certain situations, many of these would actually have an accommodation for very young learners. So they might have a plan that says masks are required with an exception for kindergartners or perhaps first graders, which again, I think is, is a recognition that uh, it's a more challenging and difficult thing to do with particularly very young students. You may or may not be in a place to say, but what is the College of Education stance on students returning to the classroom overall? So the College of Education at UF wouldn't have a, a direct stance on this. I, I think it's something we're trying to inform through research and practice. I, I think that the reality is, is that policymakers, educators, the broader public, society, we're stuck sort of between a rock and a hard place, right? I think we recognize that there are very real safety concerns in terms of bringing students back to school. However, on the other hand, we recognize that there are big costs to not having schools in session, even physically in person. And we recognize that trying to do school entirely virtually comes with an added number of challenges and um, requirements that, that school districts are not always capable of or up to speed on, um, a lot of equity concerns that, that get raised there. And we know that even sort of more broadly than children's education, we can also just think about the economic consequences of schools not being open, right? There are many parents out there whose ability to work depends on having their children in school each day and having a safe place for their, their students and young um, children to be. And so what that means is that I, I don't think there is a, a simple, direct, straight answer of, of what we should be doing here. It's, it's kind of a, a case or a question of trade-offs, right? And there are going to be some pros and cons either direction we go and, and the challenge for policymakers and educators is to decide how we balance those, those trade-offs. And I think ultimately, in many ways, it, it becomes a, a question that is very localized and contextualized, right? Even, even within Florida, despite numbers that are, are kind of rising across the state, we still recognize that certain areas of the state are dealing with much different out, outbreaks and levels of, of the virus than others are. Some of them have very different structures in terms of, of schools, and it's a very different thing to, to run a large school district with hundreds of schools than it might be um, in a more rural setting. 
And so I think these are the kinds of things that have to be taken into consideration as plans are developed. And, and that's some of what the state is trying to allow by allowing districts to submit reopening plans for approval is that opportunity to appeal to the state with a localized plan that takes into context the local situation. So how do the teachers feel? Many of them are about to find themselves on the front lines of a pandemic as cases rise in the state. Cameron Lund spoke with two such teachers about how they feel regarding the safety of going back to school. The long months of lockdown and precaution have now shriveled up to mere weeks until teachers report back for pre-planning. Within the next few weeks, as we have already seen, counties will start to announce their reopening plans. Plans that are coming in at the demand of the State Department of Education, who is mandating teaching in person a mandate that has led to a lawsuit from Florida's teacher union. During a press conference on July 22nd, Governor Ron DeSantis was quick to talk about the long list of detractors to keeping children out of in-person classes. It's often asked whether it's safe to return kids to school. should also be asked how safe it is to keep schools closed. You can bet your bottom dollar that keeping schools closed will exacerbate existing achievement gaps between demographic groups, lead to more kids dropping out of school, disproportionately impact the least economically affluent Floridians, foster more social isolation, depression and anxiety, harm students with special needs, and deprive students of the ability to engage in sports and extracurricular activities. The problem, however, with a broad reopening decree comes the small details that some counties will leave out of their plans. For example, during a school board meeting, Bradford County announced they may make mask wearing by students optional. Robin Frazier has been teaching in the county for almost 30 years, and she worries not only for herself, but for the children who could bring back COVID home to their families. I worry about the parents and the grandparents they go home to, and I worry about the staff that has underlying conditions. Um, We have, you know, we're in a county where a lot of our parents, a lot of our kids are being raised by grandparents. And I have a student in my classroom whose sibling has sickle cell anemia and is a newborn. I think there's a lot of um, underlying issues in the home so they could carry back with them. As for the social distancing that has been preached for almost half a year now, she says it will be impossible in her classroom. As far as social distancing, that's going to be all but impossible. We cannot put six feet between children in the classroom all day long. So if you're talking about, you know, avoiding closed environments where you're close to other people, that's a classroom. This statement is true for Frazier, who teaches a small special needs class. Now think about the reality for someone who teaches multiple classes a day. Lance Ness is a third grade English language arts teacher in Duval County. Duval County will have a mask mandate in place for students and teachers. Ness teaches departmentally, so he sees all of the third grade students at his school. Ness says during the pandemic, he actually has not been sick much like he usually is during the school year. It's going to sound weird, but like... I haven't been sick since we haven't been back in school. When I'm in school, I get sick about weekly, or not weekly, monthly. Sometimes it feels like weekly in the winter, but um, it's not. Children don't have the hygiene standards, and then we could say, oh, we're gonna, they're going to wash their hands more often, but they're children. They, they'll lie about it, or they won't do it, or they won't do it correctly. Nest thinks virtual learning can be done well during this time, and with teachers now being essential, it is much safer for those who are more at risk. I think we can make virtual learning as good as in-person learning or close enough um, where no one's getting sick. Because we've got teachers at my school who have been teaching as long as I've been alive, if not longer. We've got I've got like several teachers in their 60s, and they're coming back because they they need to because we don't get paid very much. 
Um, and that's just the way it is. Like, in very few, they're like, oh, we really understand that, but we need teachers. While DeSantis did speak about virtual learning being made an option available for families in this state, some aren't lucky enough to have the capabilities to make that possible, thus sending children back to school, where the apple on a teacher's desk could possibly end with another tally to the state's hundreds of thousands of positive cases. In addition to the debate over the safety of returning to brick-and-mortar instruction, is if virtual learning is best for students as well. In March, K-12 students and teachers quickly transitioned to virtual learning amid the coronavirus pandemic. Taylor Levesque spoke to Florida parents and teachers about some of the frustrations they've had with virtual learning. As a new school year approaches, the option of continuing education virtually this fall is on the table. But after what students and teachers have experienced with virtual learning already, many are skeptical. Katie McKnight is the parent of an incoming fifth grader at Caring and Sharing Learning Center and an incoming seventh grader at Lincoln Middle School. McKnight says the adjustment to virtual learning was very hard for her kids. Not being able to physically see their other classmates, um, that was the, the hardest adjustment for my children. Jennifer Rollins is a parent of an incoming fifth grader at Trilogy School. She says virtual learning is just as difficult for parents as it is for students. For myself, it was really hard because I basically had to stay home now and give up my job and be with him for homeschool. And that is not good for our family. And it wasn't good for the relationship of my son and I. We really need, you know, time doing our own things. Rick Sharp is the parent of an incoming third grader at Lawton Childs Elementary. He says it's necessary for parents to assist their kids with virtual learning. We actually had to take it upon ourselves to educate him. I had to do a lot of research to get exactly, like, come up with my own curriculum to get him through the second grade. These struggles were felt by parents, students, and teachers all around the state. In Pinellas County, school teacher Jennifer Carroll said from her experience, a lot of frustration stems from technology issues. You know, computers crashing, websites not working, kids not being able to log on, you know, at certain times for live lessons, you know, and then just trying to find lessons to keep the little ones engaged. So I felt it was more of a computer 101 class versus actually getting the curriculum across, you know, for at least three to four weeks. Back in Alachua County, Sharp says his son has ADHD. With his learning plan, he has different teachers for each subject. Some of them use Zoom, some of them use Google Classroom, some of them just sent like individual workbooks home. None of them were really on the same page. He could not follow along. He did not understand what was going on. Even during the Zoom meetings, he didn't participate because he didn't know how to participate. McKnight adds that while she understands the necessity of virtual learning during this time, she says learning in the classroom can strongly benefit a student's learning process. There's something about actually having the teacher in front of you and she or he is able to interact with you and the other students. I know it's a total difference. I understand it. I want my children to be able to meet their teacher and smile and build that rapport with their teacher. While the method of instruction for schools in Alachua County this fall remains unknown, this week the Alachua County School Board voted to approve a mandatory mask policy for students and staff and voted to push back the first day of school for students to August 24th.
While the abrupt shift to remote learning in March at the beginning of the pandemic was a difficult transition for all students, it was even more so for families that have children with special needs and disabilities and their teachers. Melissa Thato talked to educators on how they're adapting to meet the complex needs of their students using new technology while still providing the same skills found in the classroom. Adriana Hernandez is a special education teacher at Park Trails Elementary in Parkland, Florida, part of Broward County Public Schools. Special education requires very hands-on and an understanding approach. Um, you have to understand where the students are and meet them there. She works primarily with children on the autism spectrum, some for several consecutive years. The drastic change in routine had the biggest impact on them. Um, they're used to having a structured setting every day. They know what to expect. Tiffany Perez is a speech-language pathologist who has worked in both Broward County and Miami-Dade County public schools. She works with special needs students who are nonverbal and students who need help with specific language and social skills. She agrees that the classroom is very important to students with special needs. And that is really helpful with, for their learning because they feel safe in that environment. And, and when they're at home, there's not always that same structure and, and parents don't always really know how to provide that structure. Both Hernandez and Perez say their experience coordinating with parents has been productive during distance learning. But note that parents don't have the specialized skill set they do. Not to mention parents also have other responsibilities like work and other children. Hernandez says to meet her students' needs, she's had to meet with them one-on-one -on -one over video. I'm creating individual assignments for every single student to meet their needs. And so that's been very time consuming, but it's also been very rewarding. The transition to distance learning has been a challenge for educators as well. A lot of the teachers, including myself, we were kind of thrust into this over spring break and we just had to scramble to set up an online classroom, which many of us had never done before. Especially in an ESE classroom, everything we do is hands-on. We don't really have the students do any of this type of work independently at home. Perez says she's had to cut her sessions to three students at a time over video. Where I was having some groups of six, up to six, to, to be able to see everyone in my schedule. So I wasn't able to meet their, their times that they had on, on their IEP. The IEP, or Individualized Education Program, is a plan detailing the services a child with special needs is entitled to to guarantee a fair education. The IEP is a, it's a legal document. That's what we always say. This is a legal document. In Broward County, Hernandez says they've had to modify students' existing IEPs. We created, per the district, temporary distance learning plans, which basically paused the student's IEP and addressed what we could work on online. Parents were not necessarily thrilled about it. But it's what's possible at the moment, without going back into the classroom. Perez says it hasn't been an easy transition for her as a therapist. That was, that was really difficult to feel like I'm not really able to give them what we decided was what they needed. Dr. Mary Little is a seasoned special education teacher and the department chair of the Exceptional Student Education Graduate Program at the University of Central Florida. She says all parties, including parents, teachers, therapists, school districts, and federal programs have had to come together quickly to ensure the rights of special education students across Florida. It was all hands on deck to assure that federal legislation and the rights and guarantees for a free and appropriate public education, specifically for students with disabilities, 
were continuing as we were reconceptualizing the entire context of education. She says now it's just a matter of figuring out the delivery of said education. It's just planning through the when and the how. The procedures will change. The responsibilities did not. For now, it seems that online learning will have to continue for students with special needs. Broward County Public Schools Superintendent Robert Runcie has said that the school year will most likely have to begin online. Hernandez says that although she believes her students undoubtedly learn best in the classroom, it is not feasible to return just yet. My students would not be able to keep a mask on, and unfortunately they're not able to manage um, what they touch. But despite these difficult times for students and their educators, Dr. Little hopes the advancements made in online and video learning will stick. Why can't we then use video or why can't we use smaller groups or live stream a lesson to students who might have more significant disabilities? That won't be a difficult thing now. So we have a child who's medically fragile and student can receive instruction from the third grade teacher, just like everybody else, but through the internet. Across the state, parents are facing a difficult decision, whether to send their kids back to school this fall. Anthony Montalto spoke with four parents and brings us a glimpse of what that decision looks like for each one of them. When schools statewide transitioned to online learning in March, Pinellas County mom Trina Weatherly was preparing for a fundraiser for her children's high school band. It was the night of our spaghetti dinner, I believe, that was planned as a fundraiser for the band. And of course, it was the day before spring break started. And I felt like it was coming. I just, you know, everything was kind of boiling to a point. She recruits travel nurses for a living. She says she saw this coming, but never at this scale. Doing what I do for a living, we were hearing bits and pieces. You know, you, you tend to get a lot of information from different sources because... I recruit travel nurses, so we were kind of gearing up for what if. Weatherly has two kids, both in high school, a senior and a junior. She says both her kids want to go back to school, which is one of the three options the Pinellas County School District is offering. The other choice would be to do what they're calling my PCS virtual, where you would maintain the daily schedule like you would if you were in school, but you're doing it all online. And then as a third option, they've allowed them to just withdraw from the school and do FLVS. Weatherly says sending her children back to brick and mortar school this fall has prompted some tough family discussions. It could impact all of us as far as, you know, what are the chances that you guys are going to get sick or you just get it and you have no symptoms, but you bring it home to me. We've had discussions about my age and how it could very much impact me in a different way than it does them. Still, though, she says she trusts her kids to be smart, safe and vigilant as they return to classes. Another Pinellas County mom, Tina Angles, echoes much of the same. My daughter, luckily, is a 10th grader, so she's 15 and she understands. So we've sat down with her. And so I kind of have let it be her decision about it. I support going back to school. I think she's old enough to be able to, you know, take the precautions that she needs to keep herself safe. Angles is a fifth grade English ESOL teacher. Her other daughter is going into her freshman year at Florida Gulf Coast University. And Angles says she's fortunate her daughters are older, since she and her husband have to go back to work. If she was younger, I don't know so much if I would do it. But because we have to work, she would have to go back. And, you know, because we need to go back to work. So I'm not opposed to them going back. Because online learning is horrible. It's so hard. She says the Pinellas County School District sent parents a survey about a month ago, asking if they'd be comfortable sending their kids back to school. 
it was really 50-50. It came out like it wasn't like, oh, my God, everybody felt this way. And they did it over a month ago. So a lot of parents were worried. You took you took it, you know, the survey a while back ago and things have changed. And that's the thing about this thing, this virus and this pandemic is every day is different. And speaking of back to school surveys, Broward County recently sent one to its school parents, too. Melissa Goulet is a Broward eighth grade science teacher. She says while she's not necessarily worried for her kids' health if they were to go back, she worries for other families who may have more COVID-19 risk factors. So as a parent, my concern for my students is minimal because my kids don't have any health problems or health issues. I know through data that the numbers of children that are getting sick from COVID are very minimal. As an educator, my concern comes with the teachers that are maybe have health problems and health issues or that have children at their houses that they also have that health concern. Goulet says her high school age daughter worries about getting sick this fall. My oldest one is concerned from what I gather from their group of ages. The high schoolers are concerned of catching the virus and then bringing it back home and passing it down to maybe their grandparents. Another Broward County mom of two and certified sonographer Don Savino says she sees no way students can go back to school like normal this fall. I think it's a terrible idea. Savino says her children's charter school hasn't yet given them any information on the school year. Even though Broward County Schools Superintendent Robert Runcie recently said schools should go back online. And Savino agrees. Kids go to school, they bring home things. They bring home their homework and they also bring home germs and they bring home viruses and that's where... Little kids get sick, at least in my experience, when my kids went to daycare, you know, they, they came home and they were sick and kind of pass it around. Well, I, just, I don't think this is any different. The Broward School District and Teachers Union have not yet reached an agreement regarding the return to school. So things are still up in the air. And while things may be different from one school district to another, one thing remains the same. As the start of the year gets closer, many parents and students have questions that remain unanswered. For any parent that is an essential worker, the options for what to do with their kids in the fall get a little slimmer. Gabriella Paul spoke with current and former essential workers who have elementary school age children about the prospect of schools reopening in person next month. So once they told me I was fired, that was the biggest relief ever because I knew I could be home to help my daughter. Raven Pierce, 28, is an Ocala mom of two, eight-year-old Amaya and five-year-old Aaron. She was an essential full-time worker until the pandemic hit. 20th, I was terminated. It was a Monday, and she had rearranged her schedule at her job as a certified medical assistant at a geriatric facility to take an early lunch to help Amaya, her upcoming third grader, log on to her mandatory speech therapy lessons, a part of her IEP or individualized education program. By the time she returned from lunch, she had been let go. Well, at first I cried. I was very sad when my job let me go because I loved it. I love my patients. I do miss it, but during this thing right here, this is what's best for my family and I. But Prince can understand how some families don't have that luxury. This is my take. Tamisha Walker is a deputy clerk downtown at the Alachua County Courthouse and a mom to three, ages 21, 9, and 2. I'm not judging anyone else's decision on what they choose to do, but traditional school is best for us. She's eager to have her upcoming fourth grader, Chase, back in the classroom, not just for him, but also for her. Back on March 17th, when the state shut down public schools to curb the spread of coronavirus, 
Walker's job still required her in person five days a week. Until her husband accepted a senior pastor position later in the month, she was the only one bringing home a paycheck for a while. We, we have real bills. We don't live on anybody just handing us money like, hey, here you go. No, 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 no. We have real bills to pay that are due every single month. But the difference in opinions extends beyond parents of students to educators themselves. Aside from the lawsuit filed against the governor earlier this week by a Florida teachers union, educators' opinions about in-person instruction are as different as the individuals themselves. One second grade teacher in Gainesville, Mackenzie Sullivan, said this. My feelings sway almost hourly. (laughs) You know, I, I always say I'll go where the kids go. For Prince, her kids, Amaya and Aaron, will enroll in the third grade in kindergarten from home. After losing her job in the spring, she's grown to cherish her new role as a stay-at-home mom. For her, it's looked like planting a backyard vegetable garden with Amaya, downloading learning apps on Amazon, and even one impromptu history lesson after her son heard Black Lives Matter written into the script of his Nickelodeon show. For Walker, that's not the case. One, I have to work and I don't have the luxury of quitting my job and becoming a stay-at-home mom. Two, Walker read to me the six-point justification she posted on Facebook for why she needs school to operate in person next month as an essential worker and elementary parent. Despite her feeling, the opinion is unpopular, at least vocally, in the community. Four, he needs to be in a traditional classroom setting. It's better for him. Five, because my child and I'm being realistic and not following the crowd for life, I know what's best for us. Six, most of us had a hard time homeschooling for three months. We will be in school August 24th. For Walker, reopening traditional public schools comes with added necessities for her family, like childcare, social interaction for her son, physical activity at recess, and meals for breakfast and lunch. She tells me about what school means to her son Chase and for her family day to day. Coming home from school, he is excited to tell me what he's learned and what new friends he's made. So it's social for him. And it's honestly childcare for me. It's, I mean, granted, I have to pay for um, after-school care, but during from 8 to 4 or whatever, it's free. As an educator back in spring, Miss Sullivan watched classes move online. She said there's collateral consequences to this move for young learners, a broken community. A lot of these things I didn't realize either. Um, but when we started virtual school, some feedback I got from parents is how disappointed the kids were that they weren't able to talk to their friends to just, like, have conversation with their friends. Um, And it kind of opened my eyes that school, I mean, I knew school was about so much, but that social piece of school is so important to the kids, and it was what they were missing so terribly when we started virtual school. Like, kids need to be around each other, and they need to talk in unstructured environments. You know, they need to go to lunch together, and they need to go to recess together. That's a really important part of being a kid and growing up. In his defense of returning to in-person instruction this week, the governor said that children don't see the complications from COVID-19 that adults do. While early data may support that theory, there are still certainly high risks still involved. Melissa Fato spoke with Dr. Sonia Rasmussen, a pediatrician and epidemiologist at the University of Florida, who previously worked at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 20 years, to get a medical perspective on what it would mean to have kids go back to school. Most kids have a mild illness. In fact, we think probably a lot of kids are completely asymptomatic. And um, 
the kids that do have it appear to be mildly affected, but we do know that there are some children, it seems like most of those kids are kids that have underlying conditions, um, heart disease, lung disease, obesity, or other sorts of things that they've had before they got sick with COVID-19 that puts them at risk to be more severely ill. So some kids actually have gotten severely ill landed in an intensive care unit, needed care in an intensive care unit, and have even died. But that's much lower than what we see in adults. So what is MISC and Kawasaki's disease, and what does it have to do with COVID-19? Uh, we started seeing some kids that had a severe illness. It appears to be something that occurs after they've recovered, or some kids were never actually even symptomatic from COVID-19. And it's a severe illness. It's similar to something that is uh, called Kawasaki syndrome that we've known about for several decades. Um, but but it, we're now learning that it really is different. It's a multi-system. So it, it's not something just the lungs. It has to have multiple systems involved. It can be the heart, the kidney. Um, sometimes kids have skin issues. Um, you can have a long list of other systems involved and it usually is pretty severe and a lot of the kids that have had this um, have needed to be in an intensive care unit and a very few have died. It does appear that it's something that is pretty rare in occurring uh, after uh, COVID-19. It isn't something that we're seeing um, oftentimes after COVID-19 but it does seem like it occurs and different to what I've told you before about kids in the acute phase that get severely ill, this doesn't seem to be something that hits mostly kids that were sick beforehand, that had some sort of chronic condition beforehand. Um, about three quarters of the kids were completely healthy beforehand. Right now, school districts around the state of Florida are trying to figure out, do we continue with online learning in the fall or do we go back to in-person learning? I'd like to hear what your perspective or your outlook is regarding COVID-19 if students were to return to in-person instruction? Yeah, this is really a difficult situation because we all know that kids, there are a lot of advantages to kids being in in-person school where they're in-person with their teachers, in-person with their friends, it's better for academics, it's better for their social and emotional growth, it's better for mental health issues in, in uh, many ways. Some kids uh, get um, nutritional advantages or healthcare advantages of being in school. So there's a lot of advantages to being in school. Um, on the other hand, we need to be sure that it can be done safely. And um, of course, we have already discussed that most kids that get COVID-19 are either asymptomatic or seem to get it in a pretty mild way. But can they transmit it to other people? Can they transmit it to the teachers? and to other uh, employees at the school, and then can they bring it home to their families, um, and especially families that are multi-generational, where maybe the grandparents live with the family, um, potentially exposing those people that are at a much higher risk of uh, adverse outcomes of hospitalization and death is something of concern. I think it's gonna be difficult. I think it can be done. I think um, you're gonna have to spread kids out and kids are gonna to have to wear masks, and I think that's a challenge. And then of course, a lot of hand washing, but that should be something we want kids to do all the time. The most important thing is for all of us to do what we can to get these numbers down. I think it is really important for kids to get it back to school, 
but we can do it much more safely if we can get the numbers down in Florida in general. Socialization is also a huge benefit of going to school. Um, what about parents who want to set up, say, play dates between kids and their friends? Would you suggest similar precautions such as keeping it outside? Yes, I think that really makes sense. Continuing as much as you can that six feet distance, as much as you can with the child keeping their um, face masks on. And um, you can talk to the other family and see what kind of exposures they, they've had. Is the other family pretty much staying home or is somebody in the family going out to bars and restaurants, which of course are at higher risk? Um, you're gonna wanna um, really spend time with other families who are taking that same care that you are, otherwise you're putting yourself and your kids at risk. From the Front Lines is a production of the Innovation News Center at the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thank you to our producers, Taylor Levesque, Anthony Montalto, Josh Williams, Melissa Fato, Gabriella Paul, Kristen Moorhead, and Cameron Lund. Also, thanks to our fellow Florida public media stations for their contributions to this podcast. And a special thank you to Matt Abramson and Craig Lee for their work behind the scenes. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a story to share with From the Front Lines, please contact WUFT on Facebook or Twitter, or send an email to news at WUFT.org. That's news at WUFT.org. Join us next Friday for another edition of From the Front Lines. I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and of course, thanks for listening. <laughs>